really, encounters between Jesus and uh, the world in which he lives in. Uh, these sermons, this series that we began back in a couple of weeks ago, really are standalone. And what I mean by that is they don't really build on one another. We live in a, a, a time where it's really common for us to ask, uh, how do we engage with the world around us? Lots of answers have been given to that from uh, we don't, uh, we simply withdraw. Um, it is a legitimate question. A world that is uh, disinterested, uh, it's the, the least part of it, and yet is deeply broken. No one engages the world better than Jesus. Uh, that's why we started this. He's the best example of what it means to engage people uh, who are broken, whose lives are really at a mess. Sometimes due to their own fault, sometimes not. If you're a Christian this morning, what this means is that Jesus is like the way he engages his community, his culture, his world, informs us. It, uh, more than that, it forms us would be the best description. Look with me as I read from this passage this morning from Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Hear the word of God. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. When Jesus, then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that very moment. And then from Mark. Jesus left the place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, with such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your great love and mercy this morning. We pray as we look into the story of the life of this woman that met your son, that you would meet us here this morning, that you would show your grace and mercy to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The story is told from the life of uh, Bertrand Russell, who was um, an English uh, Voltaire. He was Cambridge educated. He was a child of privilege. He was a renowned philosopher and mathematician. Uh, he was famous for his in incredible intellect. His powers of analysis were so formidable that one friend nicknamed him the Day of Judgment. He once wrote this, I feel myself so rugged and ruthless. Someone removed from the whole aesthetic side of life, a sort of logic machine, warranted to destroy any idea that's not very robust. Sounds formidable until you begin to look at his life, which was not formidable. He was 
anything but a logic machine in the way he lived. His life story goes something like this. He was orphaned at the age of three by the death of his parents and orphaned philosophically by the age of 16 because he became an atheist. His personal life was a life in search for a home, for love, and children. His life was torn between his atheism, his four wives, and many mistresses. This man of logic, this logic machine, wrote this. The root of my whole thing is loneliness. I have a kind of physical loneliness, which almost anybody can more or less relieve, but which would only be fully relieved by having a wife and children. Beyond that, I'm very internal and terribly spiritually lonely. I've dreamed of some combination of spiritual and physical companionship, and if I had the good fortune to find that, I would have become something better than I shall ever be. Just this idea of physical longing, and we see this really in the pasture, or in this um, passage this morning, uh, just the posture that I want you to notice. We don't know why Jesus comes to this region, by the way, at this particular point in his ministry. It could be, as some said, that he needs rest. He needs a retreat. And so he goes to this ancient port in the city of Tyre. It is located in Phoenicia, about 20 miles northwest of Capernaum. And it looks like, from all accounts, especially the fact that he wants to keep his visit private, uh, that he needs a break from the ministry. He's staying at home, uh, most likely the home of a Gentile like in John 4. To be honest, the story never tells us all these details. He's entered a house, and for whatever reason, he's unable to keep it secret. I don't know if you picked up on it, but this whole passage really is about a longing uh, that we know well, a longing for wholeness. It shows us, demonstrates really, the painful effects that we all know. This woman's daughter is demon-possessed. That becomes apparent. And she comes to Jesus, and she begins to beg. That's one way to put it. There really is more than that. It's a longing, a desperation even. She is humble, uh, no doubt. Uh, Not only do they see, but Jesus sees this as well. He notices the brokenness of the people around him, the world in which he finds himself. Things simply are not right, and they never are. uh, This story is mostly really a sorry sight, as, as one writer said it. A life that's marred, a life that's completely broken. A life that constantly promises something that it doesn't deliver. We know this well. Money promises that it will make us complete. It never does. Power promises us security, and it's simply spin. We promise ourselves control, and yet we know we don't have it. Popularity will give you love and acceptance and approval. I don't know if you noticed the quotes in the front of the bulletin. They all have one thing in common, and it really is what we find common in Scripture, and that's this, that there are no exemplary families. Not a single family is ever portrayed in Scripture in such a way that invokes admiration of any kind. Uh, There are lots of family stories. I'm not saying that. Lots of references to family life, but there's not a single family that anyone would look up to or want to envy. Not one. So it's not just the longing, it's also the looking in the passage as well. This woman, we don't know her name, she comes looking. She comes empty-handed. She doesn't demand 
And from what we can tell, there's no previous contact with Jesus. And his response is shocking to us. It appears um, insensitive, uh, uncompassionate, and harsh. Uh, To be honest, he looks a lot like me. Um, Just a little explanation of what he gives her back. Because he says something along the lines of, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Is Jesus really calling this woman and all of her problems, is he referring to her as a dog? Well, some have taken it that way, and yet little dogs is really a special sort of phrase um, in the ancient Near East. It was about dogs that were actually admitted to the house. These are house dogs. Uh, They are found under the table at mealtimes. In contrast to yard dogs, which would be just scavengers, So Jesus is not calling her, and he's not calling the Gentiles dogs. That's common, would have been common, at least in Jesus' time and in his age from the Jews. That's how they referred to the Gentiles. I want you to see the woman didn't take his statement as an insult. Jesus alludes to this domestic scene, particularly in a Greek household. The table is set. The family is gathered. It's inappropriate to interrupt the meal and allow the household dog to basically eat off the table and carry off the children's bread. This story, this statement that he gives to this woman is really a depiction of a life situation. It's not the insult that we normally think. Why would I say that? She doesn't take it that way, and Jesus really is calling her to persevere. He's not driving her away or putting her off. And her answer, according to Jesus, is just brilliant. And what I mean by that, the religious elite around this situation doesn't get it, and neither is the disciples. Up until this point in time, Jesus has never been defeated in a debate. Uh, But this woman does. Some writer said, yes, this just shows that no man should argue with a woman. Um, His counter-response shows that she wasn't insulted at all. In fact, what's happened is, and she's the only one that's caught on to the irony of what he's saying. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't say, well, that's not fair. Or, look, this is an exception. You don't know how bad this is. Instead, what she does is she takes Jesus' statement and she turns it to her advantage. The crumbs, she argues, dropped by the children, after all, are intended for the dogs. And this statement delights Jesus. I I can't help but think at this point in time, he just breaks into this giant grin. Uh, He may have even laughed out loud at her response. That suddenly she simply asked for help, realizing she's not entitled to it. She's not even a guest at the Messiah's table. She expresses this irresistible confidence, this trust in who Jesus is, And at the same time, this humility, she doesn't demand. She takes whatever he will give, including crumbs. What's amazing is what looks to us like an insult will not put her off. She's bold. This woman who's never met Jesus before has this deep, passionate, overwhelming, and overcoming faith. What you see in her is just both humility and boldness. You never find that combined together any place other than the Gospels. 
either I'm bold, my life is going great, I'm succeeding, or I'm humble, who am I? She could have come and said, look, in this day and age, I'm a woman and I have my rights. Or she could have said, look, what's in it for me? Instead, she comes with empty hands, willing to take whatever scraps she's given, willing to even gladly take the crumbs. I want you just to notice humility doesn't mean weakness. And it certainly can't be described as being passive. She was bold and persistent. This story demonstrates that Jesus doesn't make it easy to respond. We tend to take the opposite approach. Jesus doesn't ignore the challenging or the difficult elements of Christianity. Reality is the gospel contains ideas that are hard for people to hear. Ideas like discipleship, ideas like humility, service, stewardship. Jesus is not quick to close the deal, so to speak. It's not just a posture that's seen here, this longing and this looking. But there's also the power. Jesus conquers the brokenness. This power is released within the context of faith. It's not superstition or magic. Jesus only gives it, actually, when I become vulnerable. Something strange about this power in the passage is that this includes it. And what do I mean by that? There are multiple strikes against this woman, and the writer, at least in Mark, he sort of details them all. First, uh, she's a woman, and no respectable Jewish teacher would have had anything to do with her. Second, she's a Gentile, but more, she's Syrophoenician. Josephus describes these people as being the Jews' bitterless enemies. And her daughter's condition, by the way, would have made her actually um, impure. And yet, this is the person Jesus engages in a serious dialogue. He reaches her. He reaches them. In Christianity, the humble really are included, and the proud are excluded. And it doesn't matter the race, the religion, the gender, the history. Nothing about that is important in the story. It's not only inclusive, it's really personal. Uh, the mother's love here, I don't know if you noticed it, is really what drove her to Jesus. Uh, it's, she's willing, prepared to suffer scorn, rejection because of her daughter. And humility, she comes visibly, publicly before Jesus, surrounded by his disciples, willing to take the scorn. Her greatest strength, her love for her daughter, not her weakness is what brings her to Jesus. Her greatest strength is her love for the child, and she comes. You've seen, I know, The Wizard of Oz, the, the original one, um, where, where you have Dorothy, the lion, the scarecrow, the tin man, they all arrive in the Emerald City to meet the wizard. The wizard is known to have incredible power to solve all of their problems, but to enter his presence, they must traverse in the movie this long, dimly hit Gothic hallway. Everything about the hallway is actually supposed to put them off. The lion, as you know, is not alone in his cowardness as they enter this inner sanctum. They're greeted with explosion, billars of green smoke, fire. Um, and when the smoke finally clears, you hear this menacing sort of voice, this uh, bodiless head that shouts, I'm Oz the Great and Terrible. Who are you? The minute Dorothy tries to respond, the wizard booms, Silence! The great and powerful Oz knows why you're here. Step forward, tin man. He approaches this figure with 
incredible trepidation, only hear the wizard say, you dare come to me for heart, you clinking, clanking, clattering collection of clankus junk. All the other travelers, by the way, receive a similar greeting um, to this. And to the lion, he says, and you, lion, the poor lion is overcome with fear and faints. For many of us, that's exactly how we view uh, our approach to God. I want you to see how different it is, this woman. Jesus' power is both inclusive and personal. Incredible examples of this exist. People open to the gospel when they're about to be parents. A lot of times their love for their children drives them to seek help. Their love overrides their pride, willing to say, I need help, I can't do this. I want you to see Jesus celebrates actually her strength. Do you recognize this in those around you if you're a Christian? Do you seek to observe, celebrate the strength of those people that you encounter? Do you actually see it in your community? Do you appeal, as he does, to people's strong points? And actually, is this how you approach others? Or instead, do you look for the broken, the ugly, and do you attempt to expose that? It's not just the power. What does this story produce? Well, in verse 37 of Mark, it produces absolute joy. She is overwhelmed and amazed. I want you to envision the scene in verse 30 when she returns home. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. At this point in time, you're really not sure, not certain what she expected. Maybe sort of a blessing. Maybe something else. But the emphasis here is she got much more than she bargained for. And what this produces, you can imagine, is deep personal joy. This is exactly what you find in Isaiah 35. Imagine this scene. Do you think there would have been tears? Do you think laughter? Do you think maybe a little screaming, yelling going on? Maybe a little loud? Unbridled joy. And then maybe a further step. Do you think she kept this a secret? In the ancient Near East, the houses were really built on top of one another. You never had secrets. Anything that occurred in your household, the neighbors knew about it, and consequently, so did the rest of the village. Um, do you think she exploded in such a way that the neighbors came wondering what in the world had happened? The gospel is neither safe nor is it secret. And then what you find is just the proclamation. Even this woman now, uh, this Greek, woman this outsider is now telling of jesus's goodness and his grace she's now not only bold and humble but she's bold and humble in her community she's telling everyone what jesus has done the woman came because she heard and now she's the one telling and others are coming one writer said this a man must give his life for that which gave him life if you're a Christian this morning, or even if you're not, you're always giving your life to things that you think will make you whole. No matter what that is, you're giving your life to something that you think will produce wholeness, joy, and fullness in your life. These things, this idea of joy and proclamation, they actually go together in Scripture. They're never found apart from one another. Oh, you can have proclamation without joy, but you know this one well. It becomes duty. It becomes a burden. It becomes something you dread. It becomes a mechanical approach, some steps that you have to take. Or you'll only do it as long as God gives you what you want. But you'll never have vice versa. And what I mean by that, 
if joy is present, if Jesus has done something for you as big, as astronomical as this, so will proclamation be there. It's something that can't be kept quiet. Some have wondered, why are we doing this series this fall? It's for exactly that reason. This whole series is about that, finding joy so unexplainable, so explodable that it spills over to the people around you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that your grace knows no bounds, that it reaches out to every race, every tribe, every tongue, every history, every background. It reaches into every brokenness, and you meet us in that place. You save us in the midst of it, not from it. May that be true of us this morning. Many of us have never known that kind of joy. We've never tasted something that explodes within us. We long for it. Be with us this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we come. Amen.